Edmund Nielsen Woodwinds has been serving the Double Reed community for 70 years. Nielsen sells a wide variety of oboe, oboe de mort, English horn, bassoon, and contrabassoon reeds and cane, as well as reed-making accessories, reed cases, and lafrex. And of course, they have the classic Nielsen wedge knife, which features a double hollow ground with a choice of handle size. In addition, they have many other knives available. Nielsen has long been known for their large heckle bassoon vocal inventory. Fill out their online trial form to start a trial and find the perfect heckle vocal for you. For all your double reed accessories, Nielsen is ready to help you. Don't you hate feeling bored with all the music on your stand? Well, luckily, you never have to feel that way again. JDW Sheet Music offers a wide variety of chamber music pieces for wind players of all ages. Their catalog includes duets, trios, quintets, and even double reed choir pieces for beginner, intermediate, and advanced players. Each of the pieces on the site will include sample pages, audio excerpts, and short descriptions. JDW Sheet Music has also made it possible to access the music sooner through the new digital download only feature. Pieces that are marked digital download only will be made available immediately after purchase. To learn more about JDW Sheet Music, please visit www.jdwsheetmusic.com. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish, a podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. Recording this on Saturday morning, and I feel like you can hear the sleep in both of our voices a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pre-coffee, 100%. Same. <laughs> but it's the last episode of 2019. Yes, it is. Well, actually, it's the first episode of 2020. Oh, is it? Mm-hmm. This is oh, yeah. January 1st. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but anyway, can we just like process 2019 for a second? I, I feel like overall it was a good year and it brought a lot of personal growth and helped me not necessarily clarify my goals, but clarify the ways in which I work toward my goals in a healthier way. Yeah. So for me, 2019 was very good. How about you? For me, 2019 was not as good. My uh, wife and I started living apart because she got this fantastic job. And so we have been in a long distance marriage for the entirety of 2019. So that's been pretty rough. But on the plus side, I did get a dog, which is amazing. Two big adjustments. Yeah. So for me, I think the growth has been more personal mm -hmm. rather than work-based, mm -hmm. but I'll take it. I came up with a couple of like top shelf, big picture things for us to kind of reminisce on. And first favorite memory of 2019, maybe musical memory or whatnot. I have to say doing this uh, recital uh, with my colleagues, Michael Bunchman and Ed Hafer, I did it for the first time last year. So it's kind of a 2018, 2019 combo, but it, um, 
it has the Pavel Haas suite and the Hans Gall sonata, and we tied it all back to those composers' differing experiences in World War II. So uh, that was really deeply meaningful for me. What about you? I think mine would have to be attending Meg Quigley and having my first year as part of the um, administrative team there. And it seems like a long time ago because it was January of 2019, but it gave me so much mojo to just kind of propel me into, yeah, that thing I want to pursue or that thing I've been considering going for, I'm going to do it. And I feel like I can Mm -hmm. because the environment was just super empowering and nurturing and inspiring. And that kicked off my 2019 with just a really invigorating start and uh, so happy to be a part of it. So that was one of my biggest musical memories, definitely. That's amazing. Next time it happens, I'm going to dress up like a bassoon and pretend I belong. The oboe stowaway. (laughs) (laughs) So what was your top breakthrough of 2019? I think it would be starting my mindfulness meditation practice, which was ultimately a outproduct of what I guess is my fundamental breakthrough, which I've talked about before, which Over the summer, I kind of realized that I need to approach my musicianship on three equal prongs, practice, read making, and mental health and sustainability of my uh, mindset. And that I basically just practice all the time (laughs) and would really only think about my mindset when I was feeling overwhelmed and then would just try to like throw myself at the altar of Don Green or the talent code and or something, basically only address the problem when there was a problem instead of maintaining a mentality as an aspect of my professionalism. And so in that breakthrough, I started to seek out tools that can be regular parts of my day and not clinging to practice as like the only aspect of being a bassoonist. And surprise, surprise, I feel a lot more healthy and happy. And and the meditation practice, I think, has been the common thread in terms of maintaining a really great mindset, even when I'm maybe between projects and, and wouldn't be honing that so much, but also when I'm approaching something kind of um, that might typically overwhelm me or put a lot of pressure on me, it's made me a lot more even keeled. So very grateful for that. What about you? Well, I started 2019 with the word trust, and I think I did it. I kept it, and it really helped. Every time I felt overwhelmed, I just said, just trust. And it's not just trust in a higher power, although that's part of it. It's trust in yourself and trust in your practice and your ability and your strength in the moment and your flexibility in the moment. It's like, okay, things might go wrong it's okay. You can handle it. Like that kind of trust. Mm -hmm. So I feel like that is something that I have accomplished in my performance this year, for sure. And I'm going to keep that word for 2020, I think. (laughs) What about your favorite resource discovered in 2019? 
Well, I have a mixed relationship with this one, but I think um, it's worth going back to. If you remember back in the summertime, I decided, or maybe it was, no, it was about around this time last year, I decided to do the artist's way. Mm -hmm. And I got really, really into it. And I loved it. And then I think it was week eight. One of the instructions was, okay, now you're going to go back and read all your pages. And I closed the book and I walked away (laughs) because I was under the assumption that I didn't have to read my pages. And then she said, okay, now you're going to go back and read your pages and, you know, like look at the ideas that you've had and figure out which ones are the good ones and which ones are the bad ones. I was like, nope. And so that, like, when I was doing it, that was an incredibly creative and heart-opening resource. And I think I need to go back to that with a little bit more bravery. (laughs) But, you know, for the the seven weeks that I did it, it was really fantastic. So I'm going to give it another try in 2020. (laughs) So it was like, like she was pushing on the outer rim of your comfort zone and you're okay, yep. you're okay, you're okay. And then she pushed you too far and you're just like, I need space from this. Exactly. I just cold turkey walked away. <laughs> Closed the book and left. <laughs> well, you did better than me because I was like, Galit is just like saying this is such a great resource. I want to do it too. And I bought The Artist's Way and then I never even opened it. So maybe one of my <laughs> <laughs> resolutions should be to actually open the book. (laughs) What about yours? I have two. One, I've kind of already talked about um, in my mindfulness meditation practice, I use an app to help me with that. And I use the 10% Happier app. And then they have a podcast that goes along with it. And so I've been doing that pretty religiously uh, for the past several months. And that's like my number one go-to awesome resource, but that will not resonate with every single person listening. So I think another resource I would love to point our listeners to that I discovered is the Netflix special by Brene Brown, which is called Call to Courage. She is a social scientist who studies vulnerability and um, how we respond to that and how that impacts our overall quality of life. And her Netflix special is incredibly accessible. It's hilarious. And it outlines her findings in a way that's really entertaining, but also impactful. And so I actually used one of my studio classes to watch this uh, because I watched it and I was just obsessed with it. And I went, I want my students to hear this. And so we had like a little snack party and then watched it on the big screen in one of the classrooms. And it was just a really great resource. Several of them had tears in their eyes. I cry every time I watch it. So that's Brene. It's like Brene, but with a B, like brulee. Uh, creme brulee. <laughs> brulee Brown. Got it. Creme brulee Brown. <laughs> uh, Call to Courage on Netflix. What is one important goal for you for 2020? I feel like everything I've discussed thus far ruminating on 2019 has been like treating the podcast like a therapist's couch. I've been like, my vulnerability and my my mindfulness and my my emotional breakthroughs. And you know, my goal, my one like super clarified goal for 2020, I just want to learn to double tongue. Yes. Let me tell you something. I had kind of an old school first teacher and she did not believe in double tonguing. 
it was like anything you need to do, you can get done with a strong, efficient single tongue. And I was like, okay, I'll just have a really fast single tongue. And I remember in Ula Christian Dahl's interview, he says at one point something like, do not assume that you will be able to single tongue as you approach 40 and beyond the way you could when you were 20. <laughs> and I was just like, he sees me. <laughs> He's been and in my practice now, room. Jackie? <laughs> <laughs> it is true. Like I cannot single tongue remotely as fast as I used to, even when I spend diligent amounts of time on it. And it is just time to add that skill that I, in my you know youthful defiance, assumed I would never need. I am finding myself in need. So um, if you have any awesome double-tonguing resources, listeners, please send them my way because that's going to be my big project for 2020. And I'm sure everyone surrounding my office will love hearing my uneven, clumsy tucka-tuckas for the next little while. But that's, that's one goal I have for myself. So more to come. What about you? Um, mine is going to be regular slow practice. Because I've been doing slow practice this break. And one thing I've always been scared to learn is the Pesculi Etudes. And I was like, okay, you bought the book. Just try it. Just do it really slow. So I've taken number one and I've started practicing it super slow. Marked at quarter equals 144 to 152. And I'm starting at quarter equals 50. (laughs) And I'm doing really, really slow and then something moderately fast. Like Mm -hmm. I'll go, I'll incrementally raise the metronome marking from 50 to like 60 or 62. And then I do a big jump to 80 in really, really small chunks and then try to put the chunks together at 80 and then bring that up a little bit because the squirrels in my mind do not want to go incrementally from 50 to 144. And then part of it is just le- teaching your fingers how to go fast, not just teaching them how to go slow. But I'm surprised at how quickly it's going. So um, I want to do more of that, more deep learning, um, slow practice, more trust, and uh, see how see where that takes me. I think it'll lead to more peace in performance. Hey bassoonists, are you looking to ramp up your reed making? Well, Barton Kane has the solution for you. They offer over 60 variations of precision gouged shaped and profiled bassoon cane. Use coupon code free shipping for orders over $150. This includes international orders. Go shop now at www.bartoncane.com. So I want to talk to you guys about Singin' Dog Double Reads. Singin' Dog Double Reads is an online double read shop and one of the largest suppliers of high quality and affordable professional and student reads for oboe and bassoon in the USA. Visit them at www.singindog.com to see all of their products and you'll be glad you did. That's Singin' Dog Double Reads. Absolutely delighted to be talking to Anne Bilderback, principal bassoonist of the Kansas City Symphony. Welcome, Anne. Thanks. I'm really excited to get a chance to talk with you both. 
We're so thrilled to talk to you. And I would love to ask about how you first came to the bassoon. Sure. I started on the piano when I was a little kiddo. I was probably maybe four or five. And I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago in a town called Glen Ellen. So my parents were, they were big into supporting the arts, although they would probably say that they don't have a musical bone in the body, but they are our professional audience. So they would take me to a bunch of different concerts when I was little. And they had season tickets to see the Chicago Symphony which they usually went by themselves. But once a year, my dad would take me instead of my mom. And I think it was maybe sixth or seventh grade. And I don't remember what they were playing, but I just loved that the bassoon kind of sticks out in the orchestra, but for everybody else. And I just wanted to play that. I thought it looked really cool. And so I said, dad, I want to play that. He said, well, you already play piano and you play the clarinet. So no. (laughs) <laughs> I, I decided I, I wanted to do it anyway. So I, I went around my parents and I asked my band director if I could play the song. Yes. And he, of course, was um, beyond excited. And he dug me out a bassoon and let me play. And he found me a teacher. So I went home and I said, well, here's the bassoon. And here's a list of private teachers. And so can I play this? Um, <laughs> that was that. I ended up liking it. <laughs> Did you, do you think that was part of the reason why you fell in love with the bassoon so much as they said no, so it became intoxicating and enchanting? I think you're probably right on that. <laughs> and I just liked it because it was like different and looked really, it just looked really random. And uh, so I ended up falling in love with the way it sounded too, of course, eventually. But yeah, I just picked it because it looked cool. <laughs> Yeah, we don't tend to think of the bassoon as like the instrument of rebellion, but I like it. I think (laughs) (laughs) it is now the instrument of rebellion. (laughs) This is getting so punk rock. I love it. Yes. (laughs) So how did you go from starting on the bassoon to being serious enough about it to pursue it at the conservatory level and make it your career? How was that journey? That's a really good question. I remember at the end of middle school, I went to Blue Lake Fine Arts Camp and I was still playing clarinet and bassoon and I was leaning towards bassoon. Um, But that was my first chance to really be around like my people. These are people who loved music. You, you know, eat, breathe and sleep it when you go to a music camp. And I think that's when I first started to really like just totally love it. Um, so during high school, I went to regular high school for a couple of years and the more I thought about it, I just loved playing in an ensemble and I really loved playing in an orchestra. Um, so I started looking around to see what the options were and ended up deciding to go to Interlochen for school for my junior and senior year, basically because you get to play in an orchestra two hours every day rather than just in youth symphony, like once a week. And by then, then I was totally hooked and just wanted to play the bassoon. So when it came time for looking for colleges, I really wanted to go somewhere where I was surrounded by really great musicians who were super passionate and then also have just an amazing bassoon teacher. So I went to Eastman and studied with Mr. Van Hosen for a couple of years. And then when he retired, then Mr. Hunt came 
they were both so great and really different, but they both just loved music so much and were just just great mentors for me. Then for grad school, I went to Rice and studied with Mr. Kamen. And I think that was a really good progression for me. He was fabulous with really teaching you about how to play your instrument as well as being passionate about the music. And at that time, he was still playing in the Houston Symphony um, and teaching us. So then you got the whole orchestral perspective from him because he was doing it every day. So I had great teachers. I loved them all. They were so great. You participated in a ton of music festivals. Can you tell us about that experience and um, maybe expand on what that does for you professionally and why music festivals are so important? Oh, yes. I I loved all of the festivals I went to. Um, I, I think the most important thing about getting yourself out there to the different festivals is because you get to meet just a bunch of different really great colleagues, not just on bassoon, but all the different instruments. So, for example, NRO and NOI were orchestrally kind of slanted, so we spent a lot of time at the time there working on our ensemble skills and learning that kind of rep. But then I remember at Blossom, we were doing chamber music a bunch, which was just huge for working on your um, small ensemble skills, which even in the orchestral job, we spent a lot of time thinking about what our colleagues right around us are doing. And so even if we're playing a big Mahler symphony or Bruckner symphony, we're still, like at my job now, we're listening closely to just what our woodwind colleagues are doing. And then you can kind of send your feelers out farther from that. So that's, I think, just trying to get a variety of different music experiences is great as a kid. Could you maybe walk us through embarking on your professional journey and your path to get to the Kansas City Symphony? Yes, I would love to. So when I was at Rice, I had done one year of my master's, and one of my colleagues from a summer festival actually at NRO, Roger Nye, was playing second bassoon in the Omaha Symphony. And he took a leave of absence for a year and they needed somebody to come play his job. And so he called me and asked if I'd like to play second bassoon in Omaha for that season, which was an amazing experience. So getting my chance to play in the Omaha Symphony really did open my eyes to what it's like to do the job of being an orchestral player. And I also figured out that I'm not a very good second bassoon player. I actually don't love playing the low notes they scare me they still scare me to this day (laughs) and I would way rather play the high notes and I did take a couple of second position auditions and not very successful at that and so when I went back to Rice to finish my master's I think that's when I started figuring out that um, I need to play to my strength just playing in the mid and high register but still work like crazy on improving my low register and especially my confidence down there because it just just don't feel comfy playing the low notes so I work hard at trying to play in tune and clearly um, in all the registers but I really feel like I have to work hard down there so at the end of Rice I graduated and I took a couple of second position auditions and kind of failed and then I 
auditioned for the um, the Louisiana Philharmonic, which is in New Orleans, and I did win that job, and I played there for a couple of seasons. Um, I feel like I learned a lot. I was still real green and young, um, figuring out how to play with your colleagues and lead a section, and it, 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 there's a learning curve there. And I was marginally successful there. It wasn't probably the best fit. So from there, I moved to Dallas for just a couple of months to try to freelance and teach. I taught a bunch of students. I think I had like 40 bassoon students and I actually Whoa. had five oh. oboe students. Whoa. I, I, didn't, <laughs> I know. And I knew nothing about the oboe. So I would call my best friend who was actually at that time she was in the Kansas City Symphony. Laura, she was Laura Schaefer there. Now she's uh-huh. Laura Schaefer parent. And I would call her and ask her what I should tell these oboe students every week. And then she'd give me some gems of wisdom to teach them because part of my deal was I needed to teach these sweet oboe players. And so they knew I didn't know what I was really talking about. They were very sweet kids. So after about three or four months, I just really wanted to regroup and practice and get a new job. And so with, I guess I just, I just had a fire in my belly and I just really wanted to play in an orchestra somewhere and I love the Midwest I'm from being from Chicago I really wanted to play kind of near my home I guess and so when this audition came up I started practicing just like crazy I think I got the list about two months ahead of time and worked on it every spare minute of the day that I had um, in between teaching and just freelancing I just tried to figure it out get in as much practice time as I could. I also had figured out that I tend to practice the stuff I'm good at and I tend to ignore the things I'm not so great at. And so I actually wrote out a practice like regiment for me for oh I'd do it for a week at a time to make sure that I spent time on the excerpts that I didn't love as much and still put time in on the ones that I did love. And then leading up to the audition, I remember I had drawn the number or they assigned me the number of sometime in the nine o'clock hour. So I knew it was gonna be an early in the day audition for my prelims. So I went go to bed when I knew I needed to go to bed for the whole couple weeks leading up to it. Then I would get up when I knew I needed to get up in order to do the audition. I would put my bassoon together and set while I put it in the music stand and I would start running up and down the stairs to try to make myself like out of breath and then I'd go over and I'd pick up my bassoon and I'd walk around the apartment with it and then I'd slice if I was going from the warm-up room to the stage and then I would sit down and make myself do some sort of prelim round and Mm -hmm. the hardest thing for me was walking around holding my instrument and then sitting down and playing I hadn't ever really thought about that before and that was super helpful for me I was just trying to take out as many variables as I could out of the audition process that because there's so much you can't control but I can control how it feels to carry my instrument and then walk in and then sit down like I can practice that so I spent time doing that so they were nice enough to pick me at that audition that was a crazy one I think we had I was on the second day and we had prelims, semis, finals, and then we had a super finals all in that same day. So I was a little tired puppy at the end of that day. <laughs> but thankfully they they picked me and I have been here for 21 seasons. 
That's amazing. Thank you so much for talking about your failures as well as your successes. I'm curious to know, you know, what you learned from those experiences where you didn't feel 100% comfortable or 100% great fit, or you didn't make it to the next round. What, what did you glean from that, that that you use now in your performing? That is an excellent question. And yeah, I think everybody's going to run into that wall at some point, and it could be earlier in your musical development, or it, you know, it could be later on. But we're all going to hit, you know, we're all going to hit these walls. We're all going to experience a conductor saying, "No, they didn't like how you just played that. Do it again, and do it louder, do it softer, do it faster." Where there there will be so many auditions where you think you just totally killed it and they don't call your number. You're just wondering, what did I do wrong? Well, Mm -hmm. you might not have done anything wrong, and they just didn't like what you had to offer. And I think that was the biggest um, kind of eye-opening experience for me is to realize that I have to just play how I play and embrace the good things that I have and really send those out there. And if people don't like it, then that's fine. We'll just move on and there's going to be another audition. There's going to be another, you know, maybe you really want to get into a certain music school and that one teacher didn't love you this time. Well, that might not be the right fit for you or you try again next year. Maybe you get in next year. You just don't want to quit. If you're really passionate about this as a profession, there's going to be hard things we have to stumble through and you just got to keep pushing through and put your voice out there. When you're considering these things on the other side of the screen, now being a member of the orchestra and listening to auditions, what are the things that you really respond to in an audition? What are some aspects of fit that you look for? Excellent question. We have had a ton of woodwind auditions since I've been in the Kansas City Symphony. And so I have lots of experience on that side of the screen. Uh, my first thought is to put some put some serious thought into your resume as you're building your resume. We're probably in most orchestras now, we just don't have time to hear a couple hundred people, so we may have to cut out some resumes. You should always petition if you really want to come to an audition anyway, but um, put yourself in a good position to not be the guy cut. So make sure for an orchestra audition, limit it to one page and put your most impressive experience front and center, whether you have a job or if it's your school orchestra, could be a summer festival you went to, or maybe you made it to the finals in some audition, put that at kind of at the top under your experience. That's your prime real estate right there. Yeah. So I think you want to make it easy for the committee to invite you. So you don't bury your good stuff like halfway down the page. It just makes it harder for them to realize how awesome you are. Um, then for preparation, we talked a little bit about preparing, uh, at least what I do, but I think it's important that you know the tempo of all of the excerpts to so listen to good recordings. And there could be a tempo window that's acceptable, but if you're going to play a slow movement of a Brahms symphony, it can't be fast or they're going <laughs> to think you're crazy. I think one of the most important things is to realize 
that um, auditions are scary and they are hard and there's no way to get around that. So just kind of own that and know it's going to be hard and it's going to be scary, but that everybody behind the screen has been in your shoes. And so we all know that it's super hard and scary, right? So we just want you to show us what you can do on your instruments. And I think if you get over the fact that you have to play, I have to play really soft and I have to play really loud. If you just put it out there that this is how you play and take it or leave it, I think that takes some of the pressure, maybe a little of the pressure off. Just know that they really want you guys to do your best. Um, some of the pitfalls that we've seen is intervals that people aren't necessarily in tune with themselves. So at least for our orchestra, we do play at 440. At least that's what we shoot for. Um, but it doesn't really matter if you're at 440 or even if you're a little higher than that or whatever, as long as your intervals are in tune with each other. So let's say you know that your E's are high and your B's are low, but you have to play that interval in an excerpt. Really practice that interval because it's super easy for you to be eliminated from a round if you're just, if your intervals are a little wacky. Like another example I remember in, isn't it the Mozart Bobo Concerto where you have to kind of get up to a high C to get mm -hmm. the C and then they hold it for a little yeah. while. Mm -hmm. Thanks Mozart. <laughs> so yes, we know that's not fun for you guys. I get that. <laughs> But it's important that when you're doing whatever fun little diminuendo or creative phrasing or vibrato, that your C really needs to kind of stay at the same spot. So if it goes up and then scoops back down and then goes back up again, that's one of the first things the committee hears. Mm. And at least for me, I always start each candidate as a yes. And then as you do things that maybe I don't love or that I don't think I'm going to be able to play with, you get little kind of tick marks in my brain on the no category. Or if you do things that really rock out and are awesome, then I'm like, then you are a definite yes. Mm -hmm. So yeah, just I say watch intonation and your tempos. Those are easy things, not easy things to fix, but easy things to just latch onto that you know you need to do. At least for our orchestra, we don't, our committees don't tend to be too panicky if you miss a note or flub something. That's no big deal. Just keep going. And I think it, like if you get water in your key, we can hear that. And we understand that that, that that happens. And yeah, it can rattle you, but just keep powering through and do your best. Now, if you do totally wipe out on an excerpt, let's say you're playing Marriage of Figaro and you just totally wipe out. Our committee is definitely okay, if you ask the proctor if you want to play it again, we would love to hear you play it again. Just make sure that when you do play it again, it's got to be better than the time you wiped out. Because if you wipe out twice, then it's kind of bad. <laughs> and, oh, I guess the other thing is make sure you don't ask to do, like, all five excerpts over again, because that'll make the committee <laughs> a little grumpy. So just be wise about about using your, um, your do-overs. <laughs> Yeah, I could see how that would be a little bit annoying. So, without a special candidate or somebody that really rocks on the stage. I think it depends on what, what round you are in. And so, we're, I'm just going to separate it out for a quick second. When we listen to our prelims, we're just looking for somebody who, on that day, obviously people, good players have bad auditions all the time. And that doesn't mean that you're a bad player. We're just talking about, like, this one day, these four minutes that you played. If we hear 
qualities that we want to hear again, then we'll vote yes to put you in the next round. And then the same kind of goes for the semis. Do we want to hear you again? And that gets you to the finals. And then when you're in the finals, that's kind of when people really bring it. And all of these players obviously are qualified to do the job. But there's no question about that. And so to try to separate players, usually what we hear is someone who really understands the differences of how they need to play the particular excerpt that they're in. So if you're doing a Shostakovich excerpt, that's going to need to have a real different mood and sound quality and intensity than if you're playing your Mozart concerto. And so that has to have a certain elegance and clarity and freezing. So if all of your excerpts start to sound the same, somebody else is probably going to be able to bring a wider array of colors and thoughts about how that music goes. So usually the player who ends up winning is the one who really kind of gets how the pieces go and how they are supposed to fit in. When you were speaking about earlier in your career, you mentioned that you look back and think of how green you were, that you didn't know some of the fundamental skills of playing in an orchestra, like how to be an effective principal and how to play with others. And obviously those are skills that you can't just verbalize, but what are some of the key things that you think took you from not being green to being ready to um, do the job that you have now? One of the most important things about being an orchestra player is knowing when you're supposed to come out of the texture and when you need to be more of a supporting role. And particularly as a principal, I think as second, your job is more support kind of all the time. But as a principal, we all know the big excerpts and when those need to come out but there's all these other little wonderful moments, maybe in a Brahms symphony that isn't an excerpt that you've practiced for the last 47 years of your life, but you need to figure out when you need to really pop out of the texture and carry the phrase and lead a little, or maybe you have something with the clarinet and you're in unison and you need to focus on blending with the principal clarinet. And I think that took me a little while to really figure out when my voice is really important and I need to cut through and when I need to just be more of a team player. So listening to a ton of recordings, um, now it make it, they make it super easy because we have everything basically at the fingertips at any computer. So that's, I think that's been a really great improvement for younger musicians. You really don't have an excuse not to know how it goes because we have recordings just pretty much everywhere. So really listening to tons of recordings and score studying. I'll try to pull up a score and follow along and you can figure out who you play with and, or when you're, when you're by yourself, or if you have to lead your section, or if it's just a single bassoon, then of course I don't have to worry about the rest of the row. So I think score preparation and studying um, the, and listening were probably the things that helped me the most. You've been principal in the Kansas City Symphony uh, since 1999. And I would 
love to ask how your relationship with your job and with the bassoon has evolved over that time. I have gone from loving the bassoon to hating the bassoon to loving the bassoon, then hating it all over again. (laughs) It's it's probably has to do mostly with reeds because reeds are those little beasts that can either help you sing it through your instrument or totally get in your way. So I think feeling more confident with my reed making certainly has made my job, I don't know, easier, but more manageable as as I've kind of grown into it. Um, basically, I feel like I have to make a lot of reads. You didn't ask about reads. I'm talking about reads. Do it. <laughs> All right. We're doing it. We're going with reads. Yes. Um, I feel like it's important that you don't take it personally that these things are not working. Like it's, they're not out to, they're like not out to get me. They're just a little piece of wood. And, but I get mad when they aren't doing what I want. So i I used to take each one so personally and want to spend all this time making it better. And I think I've realized as I've gotten older that I just need to move on and make just a lot. I need to not get attached. So what I do now is I'll make one and I feel like I need just to ask it, are you going to do what I need you to do? Because if not, I'm like moving on. I'm not going to play on you. So if it's, too soft or it's not responding and then I work on it for two or three or four days and it's still not playing soft enough and it's still not responding it goes in the garbage and then I just say goodbye and move on and if I keep cutting new ones then I never get too far behind so I feel like it's important that for me to keep rotating through them so that I just don't have a bunch of new ones that aren't ready for work but the old ones really shouldn't be coming to work anymore. I feel like I need to always be rotating through them so that I would have stuff that works. See, also for me, I know some people are able to have, like they're really good read makers and they can make a read and it just does everything. And that's just not me. I feel like I need to figure out what I need to read to do for each specific piece. And then I just need to keep making reads until I find one that will do what I need. So I'm I'm not against switching reads in a concert. If I have something on the first half that requires one set of skills and something on the second half that's something different. Like, for example, a couple of weeks ago, we played with the Kansas City Ballet and also the um, Lyric Opera, which is the Kansas City Opera Company. So we spend time in the pit. And for the ballet a couple of weeks ago, we had a... The first half was like Baroque concerto movements. So there was the Vivaldi E minor, the last movement of the Bassoon Concerto. And that was on the first half. And then Carmina Burana was on the second half. So there was no way I was going to be able to have a read that did Vivaldi E minor and then something to do the Screaming High Carmina solo. So I had reads for the first half and then I had reads for the second half. And once I figured that out, I feel like my life got a little easier that I just didn't need the one under read every week. Mm-hmm. I just need to have a read that'll do its job when I need it. In addition to being a famous principal bassoonist, you are also a mother. And one thing that I think we haven't talked about enough on this podcast is we talk about work-life balance kind of in this 
arbitrary pie in the sky way, but the tangible necessity of having children and having to prioritize someone other than ourselves um, can seem daunting when, you know, a lot of times for musicians, our lives revolve around what we do and our instrument. And so I'd love to hear about how you balance um, your professional life and motherhood and maybe what you've learned or the perspective you've gained in the process. Yes, I love being a mom. It, I think it brings... Oh, it's just, it brings so much joy. And yeah, you have to get kind of over yourself because there's these little people who, well, at first when they're little, they really need you. And then when they're older, like mine are now, they're in middle school and high school. Now they act like they need you, even if they can do it themselves. But um, I- <laughs> <laughs> said with, <laughs> said with no resentment. <laughs> no, I love them. Pretty much every day. <laughs> I take that back. They're awesome. I love them very much. Ah, um, mommy loves you almost every day. <laughs> almost every day. <laughs> they are such great kids. I mean, I know I'm joking about them, but they are really great. My daughter um, is a freshman in high school and my son's in eighth grade. And when they were little, yes it was hard to find practice time because they just, they need you all the time. And it was important for me. I feel like to be a mom first and a professional first, but to try to be both of those things, it, it's a hard balance. And when they were little, I had to find creative ways to keep them busy and safe while I still practiced. And a lot of times it was just 15 or 20 minute chunks is all I had. So I definitely had to figure out how to be super efficient with what I needed to get done and not waste time practicing stuff I was good at or that I could do, but really figure out what, what do I suck at right now? And I need to get better at that right now. So that was kind of a big, um, once I figured that out, that helped a lot. Um, I now figured out that I have to prepare farther in advance than I probably would if I didn't have kiddos needing my time. So I don't like to be any more than a couple of weeks behind. Like, so right now I'm working on music that we're doing for the week before Thanksgiving and Thanksgiving week. If I don't get going on that now, somebody could get sick and we might end up the doctor. And then that takes your practice time for that day. So I find that with reads and listening and like studying the score I just do that farther as far out as I and I oh in the summer so our season runs from September through the end of June which means we have July and August off which is great because then I can listen ahead to whatever we're doing the next season and I try to make some blanks ahead of time and you just get it going on the read process. I don't mean to make a ton of blanks in case something's wrong with my machines and they need to be readjusted because that would be a shame to have like a hundred blanks and realize like 50 of them have to go in the garbage because your profiler's messed up. (laughs) That would be bad. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So I try to have, um, by the end of the summer, I try to have maybe 40 or 50, maybe somewhere in there. 
so that that can kind of get me started through the season. And then I keep trying to stay ahead. If I make six or eight of them blanks a week and I'm cutting six or eight, then I never fall behind because I just know that at some point a kiddo is going to get sick and I will get behind, but then you're only a little bit behind rather than feeling like I'm totally drowning. Um, and there are many times when I actually will go to like um, a baseball game or like my daughter's band concert and I'll be in concert black with my bassoon and I can come to half of it and then I have to leave. And I just, my, my mom friends know that they'll see me in black most of the time, but it's important <laughs> to me. Like, I feel like I want to be there and support them, but then I know I might have to run off to a concert. They know it's not funeral black, it's concert black. It is concert black, yes. <laughs> If you could pick a dream program, what would it be? Like if you, if you could play, if you could program one concert entirely out of your top pieces. My, my, <laughs> my sassy side says pick a whole bunch of tassets. Um, no like no I love this is gonna sound dark but I really love requiems and I love choral music so I think Mm -hmm. I would put like for a requiem on there and I love Mozart requiem and I love um Verdi so I mean that might be kind of a dark program and it would be really long I do. There's just something about play, like playing in an orchestra and then having the human voice contributing. I just, oh, yeah. I just love that. And then it really could be Funeral Black. <laughs> right. Triple Requiem. <laughs> <laughs> I was just thinking Brahms is probably like, hey, what about me? <laughs> what about me? <laughs> yeah. I don't love the Brahms Requiem. It's not, it's hard. Controversial opinion. <laughs> it's really hard. It hurts my face to play it because you're playing the whole time. That's um, going to be on your quote card. Don't love the Brahms Requiem. Yeah, the oboist is taking personal offense that you're not like dying for Brahms. <laughs> I like Brahms, just not that one. Yeah. <laughs> So we love to ask our guests about favorite memories of past performances. Some will go with the uber inspiring stay with you performances. Some will share maybe an embarrassing moment. We'll we'll make it Anne's choice. We'll keep with the theme of Anne's choice. Um, Do you have any memories that stick out in your mind as particularly memorable from a past performance? Yeah, two things come to mind, and they're super different. Okay, so I'll go for I'll go for a happy memory first. I think the reason why I was drawn to music in the first place, and the why I'm why I'm still super passionate about it, is because it brings people together, and you're trying to reach out to players. Like the players are trying to reach out to the audience and and communicate with them. So one of the my favorite memories, we were in our, well, it's not new now, but when we first moved into Hellsburg Hall, the the audience is really kind of close 
to us. And our old hall was kind of a big barn. It was really dark. You couldn't really see the audience. But in this hall, I feel like it's really personal. And I honestly, I don't remember what we were playing, but the audience was clapping and there was, they were doing standing ovation. And there was a woman in the front row, right in the center, and she was standing up applauding and she just had tears rolling down her face. And it was so powerful that we did that for her. Like she had such a response to what we just played. And so I just, I love that. I still remember that woman that was maybe six or eight years ago now. Uh, and then on a totally separate note, I do have a moment that I was not very proud of. I think we were playing Shostakovich 10, which is kind of serious and dark and powerful. So we were in one of those slow, super soft very delicate moments and I was dipping my reed in my little reed cup and I have one of those shelves that you can kind of attach to the to the mm -hmm. music stand mm -hmm. and I managed to knock my water cup over on the little shelf which didn't make any sound because there's that like felt bottom but it was close enough to the edge that it went splashing all over the stage in a concert <laughs> in the quietest, <laughs> most serious part of Shostakovich tent. And our principal flute, Mike Gordon, like he was right behind him. And he literally jumped, and of course. <laughs> Raymond, who was our principal clarinet, and I could see this. And we started giggling, which is not okay, right? It's not okay. This is a very serious concert. And we're trying not to giggle. And we eventually pulled it together, but uh, yeah, that was not, I, I don't have that shelf anymore. I threw it away <laughs> because that's dangerous. I'm so curious. What was going through your mind as you were trying to, like, what were you saying to yourself to get yourself to stop laughing? Well, my first thought was it really sounded like Niagara Falls. <laughs> and <laughs> I think my next like I just you know you have that you have that voice in your head and sometimes it's you know the voice that tells you you know like all, all those mean things when you're anxious that time the voice was like oh my gosh you're wrecking this concert and I'm yelling back in my head to that voice like shut up I'm trying to pull it together here this is serious this is serious business <laughs> My husband calls those the church giggles, like when you're laughing inappropriately at a time you should not. Yes. Yeah. We, even as professionals, we do sometimes get the church giggles. <laughs> and what is your advice that you would give to a young musician who aspires to have a career like yours? I think that you should surround yourself with excellent players or they even don't even have to be excellent, I guess, as long as they're super passionate about music and want to work hard and want to get better and really want to create something that's interesting and beautiful um, in their music. So find, find your people and they could be all over the place. They can be at your school and they can be at summer festivals Obviously, I had really great teachers at school, but I learned as much from 
my Bastion colleagues in the studio and we challenged each other and we questioned each other and you would, you know, toss read, read ideas back and forth. And I think I learned as much from those guys as probably as much as I did from our teachers. So I think you should do that. I think you should practice like a crazy beast and record yourself when you're practicing, especially for auditions, because it's, you can't always hear all the little details when you're just, when you're busy, you're busy putting, pushing your buttons and blowing your air and trying to create a phrase. You can't always hear all the little details. So um, I would say record yourself a bunch and find your voice, figure out what it is that, that you want to say. And I always knew I wanted to be in an orchestra and thankfully that worked out for me. I just love the power of playing with 80 other people. Um, but you don't have to be in an orchestra to put your voice out there. And so whatever it is, if you're really passionate about teaching, then you need to try to go do that 200%. And if you love chamber music, create chamber music opportunities for yourself and play with just anybody who wants to play with you. So I, I just think if you just kind of dive in and explore your opportunities, I think you can, you can find, um, find your path. That is amazing advice. And thank you so much. This was such a wonderful chat. And I'm so glad that we were able to get you on Double Read Dish. Thank you so much for talking with us. I am a Double Read Dish super fan. So this has really been fun listening or talking and listening over the last few months to all of your guys' episodes. And thank you so much for having me and uh, just getting a chance to talk. We hope you enjoyed that interview. You can always find us on our social media. We love interacting with all of our listeners. Talk to us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Email us at doublereaddish at gmail.com. And you can also find the podcast on YouTube, Spotify, Google Play, iTunes, and I think wherever. Oh, Stitcher. Yes, Stitcher. And wherever you can get your podcasts. Jackie, who do we have coming up? Next episode features an interview with Teresa Delaplane, teaching assistant professor of oboe at the University of Arkansas. Galit, it's time to end this nerd parade. <laughs> Did you forget my name for a second? <laughs> no, I forgot the tagline I always do. <laughs> oh, <laughs> go make reads. <laughs>